From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The governor wants to rethink housing across Colorado, but a key part of his plan isn't going over so well with state lawmakers. We'll get an update from CPR's public affairs reporter, Andrew Kinney. Then, for years, she was the face of long-distance running for Nike. But behind the scenes, her seemingly dreamy career, in many ways, turned into a nightmare. Honestly, when I started to think, when my contract's up, I I am going to leave. I need to be with a company that believes in women and treats women the same way behind closed doors as they do out in public. We talk with Boulder-based athlete Kara Goucher about her new memoir that pulls the curtain back on the world of elite running. And later, raising awareness about the record number of Black babies and those who birthed them dying in Colorado. The largest source of support for Colorado Public Radio comes from members across our state. I'm from Denver. Aurora. Glenwood Springs. Grand Junction. Boulder. Pilots Ranch. With your donation, you connect your city to nonprofit journalism, to inspiring stories, and you connect your community to a wide range of music that fills our daily life. Month after month, donors continue to step up. Thank you for your support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. One of the biggest dramas at the legislature right now goes by the undramatic name of land use. It's Governor Jared Polis's big bill to overhaul how the state builds housing. But in the last few days, it's been getting smaller and smaller. CPR's Andrew Kenny has been following all the twists and turns, and he joins me now. Hi, Andy. Hi, Chandra. So, Andy, when this bill was introduced, it had the potential to override local zoning rules in dozens of Colorado communities. But I take it that's not what it does now. No, it it doesn't at the moment. And to explain, this bill started very big, like you said, but it has a very narrow political path where all the Republicans are opposed, as far as I can tell. And it's also controversial among Democrats. And so what we've seen is that at each stage in the process, Democrats, individual Democratic lawmakers have requested these changes and these scalebacks, and they've had a lot of leverage to get that done. So the sponsors have had to cut the bill back and back and back just to keep the bill moving forward. And how has that changed the bill? So as you mentioned, this began as an upzoning bill. Uh, Originally, it was going to require all residential areas in most front range cities and, and also in ski towns to allow what's called middle housing, where Uh, The city, even if they didn't want to, would have to allow up to six residential units on a single lot. Mm. Uh, The idea was to increase residential density, whether the city liked it or not. And over time, they cut out the ski towns. They said, ski towns, you don't have to do that. And they said, cities, you only have to upzone some of that residential (laughs) land. And they said, it can just be four units per lot instead of six. So the upzoning got shrunk back and back and back. But then this week in the Appropriations Committee, Democrats went even further and they passed what's called a strike below. It basically means that you rewrite most of the bill. And now with that amendment, they removed all of the upzoning. They said, cities, you don't have to allow density if you don't want it. This bill is now just going to be about planning for growth and setting some goals. And maybe cities can get some money if they allow denser residential development. No more mandates. Is that it? So this big proposal <laughs> Governor Polis put out there ends as uh-huh. just a study and some voluntary planning? 
I mean, it still would be a significant change is creating this statewide planning arm around housing that Colorado really doesn't have right now. Um, and there still is a chance that the bill ends up reinvigorated or re-enlarged because even though it's been shrunken down for now in the Senate, the supporters could beef it back up again. It still has to go through the House where there are even more Democrats. Um, so if that happens, you know, the House could add back up zoning, make it a more aggressive bill. If that happens, then the House and the Senate have to negotiate over what version of the bill will finally pass. It's complicated, but it just goes to say that it's all up in the air what the final version of this bill would look like, assuming that it does get through the legislature at all. Now, I want to go back to this idea that this bill is a top priority for Governor Polis, Mm -hmm. but it's getting severely trimmed back at the hands of Democratic lawmakers. Why aren't they on board with this? Yeah, it's really interesting. And the reason seems to be that there's just tons of pressure and backlash around this bill. The most striking way I can explain this is that if you look at the metro Denver area, uh, there are about 39 cities that are a member of this Metro Mayor's Caucus, Mm. and most of them are run by Democrats. You would expect them to get on board with a Democratic governor's bill. But 38 out of those 39 cities are opposed And only the city of Boulder said it likes the bill as it was originally proposed. And a lot of that is that city officials don't want to lose control. They don't want the state to decide where density goes. City elected leaders say that they should make those decisions at the local level because they have local impacts. But to me, it also represents backlash from the current residents of those cities, where we've seen just hundreds of current homeowners, especially turning out to meetings emailing their lawmakers, especially in suburban districts. Senators are getting more than a thousand messages against the bill in some cases. Mm. And that's driven by the fact that right or wrong, a lot of people say they just don't want to live near apartments and condos. It's it's backlash to the idea of density. I saw you had a story earlier this week about one of those meetings. Tell us about that. It was a pretty interesting scene. It was at a big home in Cherry Hill Village, which is a small, very wealthy kind of enclave south of Denver. It looks almost rural, even though it's in the middle of the suburbs. And, you know, we we saw that um, representatives from Cherry Hills Village were basically saying that they don't think that these new upzoning laws, density laws should apply to them. And obviously a lot of residents of Cherry Hills Village agreed because, you know, just dozens and dozens of people, like 150 people, came to this house to gather in this gigantic living room and really almost yell at their state lawmakers. I mean, they weren't yelling. They were being polite. (laughs) Um, But you saw the real pressure. And state lawmakers got up there and said that they were going to fight this bill, that they they heard the resistance, and that they were going to try to stop this thing. Wow. That definitely paints a picture of where at least some of the opposition is coming from. Yeah, but, you know, to be fair, it's not all just super wealthy people opposed to it. At this very same meeting, the mayor of Sheridan was there. Sheridan isn't very far away, but incomes are way lower. It's a very different city. And the mayor of Sheridan said she's also opposed to the bill because she worries about whether allowing a bunch of new development would cause affordability problems, would displace existing residents. So concerns from total opposite ends of the economic spectrum there. There's a little more than a week left in a legislative session. Is there really time for Governor Polis and the bill supporters to get this done? There is still time. You can get a bill done in just like three days, technically. But, you know, what you can get done is different than what you will get done because it gets harder and harder as time goes on. Now they've like cut the bill back. It's not that easy to just 
rebuild it again. You, you've kind of lost rhetorical ground almost. You, you've 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 lost momentum in some ways. So you know they have to marshal all these votes, whip up support. It's all kind of up in the air. We're hearing signals from top Democrats that they could accept the amended bill. They could accept doing it without the upzoning, at least as a first step. They're kind of girding themselves, I think, for the possibility they don't get what they wanted. So that's a first step. So what would come after that? You know, Polis, again, this is a top priority. He's in just the first year of his second and final term in office. And he's made it clear he's going to keep the focus on this. So I, I think he will try to try again. Thank you, Andy. Thank you. That's CPR public affairs reporter Andrew Kenny talking about developments with the Democrats' big land use bill. When we come back, an eye-opening look at the world of elite running. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Joanne Woolley, Director of Legacy Giving. A future gift to Colorado Public Radio through your will or estate is a meaningful way to recognize and sustain an organization that enriches your life and your community. If leaving a gift to CPR is already in your future plans, please let us know. As a fellow Legacy Circle member, it would be my privilege to thank you and hear your story. Learn more at cpr.mylegacygift.org. In a new memoir, Kara Goucher pulls the curtain back on the world of elite running. Goucher lives in Boulder. Her memoir focuses on years training with Nike. She describes a culture of abuse and evidence that she witnessed her coach and possibly some of her teammates using performance-enhancing drugs. She also describes her personal transformation through her running career. Hi, Kara. Hi. I'm going to jump right into your Olympic debut. It was 2008 in Beijing. Being in the Athletes' Village, you got imposter syndrome, feeling like you didn't belong there. What was it like to be in the Olympics and to race there, but at the same time not feel like you belonged? Yeah, you know, it had been this lifelong, like lifelong childhood dream. But when I got there, I just felt really overwhelmed. I was seeing literally the best athletes in the world walking around the village and, um, I just felt overwhelmed, like, how did I get here? Uh, I remember walking out into the track stadium and it sat, there 80,000 people, and that's more than are in my hometown. So I just got kind of overwhelmed by the experience and all the things that I had done that had helped me become a good athlete. I sort of lost my way a little bit while I was there at the Olympics. Now, you've been passionate about running from such a young age. How did you get into it growing up in Duluth, Minnesota? Yeah, well, believe it or not, Duluth, Minnesota has a pretty big running culture. We have Grandma's Marathon, which is uh, a big marathon every June. But I got into it because my grandpa was a lifelong runner. Um, It's kind of interesting. He wasn't necessarily like a racer like I became. Mm -hmm. He just loved it for the movement and the freedom of it. And he's the one that got me into running. He took me to my first race when I was six years old. And he loved to tell the story about how I fell at the start. And he thought I was going to cry. And instead, I jumped up and was like competitive. And he was like, wow, he didn't know that I had that in me. And so he really was someone, I mean, he was a father figure to me, just a really, really influential person in my life. And since he loved running and he introduced it to me, I just loved it right away because it was special between him and me. So I heard that he had a notebook and a pen in one hand and a stopwatch in the other. Oh, yeah. When he cheered, it was booming. Like, 
you could hear him across the track or way across the cross country course. And he would like take notes. He would help me set goals and he would write down my splits during each race and then give it to me so I could look and see where I had faltered or maybe I went out too fast. And he was really, really into it, but not in a way that made me feel pressure. Just he just loved that I was doing it and I was experiencing that sport. Oh, I love that. I'm just imagining him with that notebook. It's like, oh, who needs technology? I get a notebook and get to the get to business. <laughs> totally, totally. Just a paper and pen. That's right. Keep it simple. So you write about two formative experiences you had during races when you were really young. One against a sixth grade boyfriend and one against a babysitter. What happened in those incidents and what did it teach you? Those two incidences in sixth grade, I raced against um, like literally the love of my life at the time. And (laughs) we were running, I think, a 440, uh, like a 440 yard dash. And he was in the lead and I was closing in on him. And I remember thinking like, I don't want to pass him. I don't want him to be mad at me or to feel bad. But again, that competitive instinct kicked in and I went by him. And at the end, I thought he was going to be embarrassed or not want to talk to me. But instead, he was like, good job. You know, he was nice to me afterwards. And so kind of laid this early seed of it's okay to be competitive. There's nothing wrong with being competitive. Um, And then fast forward, uh, I guess a year, I was in seventh grade and I was race, I was racing for the high school for the track team. And I was running behind my former babysitter. (laughs) And I was just sort of sitting behind her thinking like, I can't pass her. That would be so disrespectful. Like literally four years ago, she was tucking me in bed. Um, and she said, Kara, just go ahead and pass me. And, and I hesitated and she really encouraged me again. And afterwards she was like, don't be afraid to pass people. And so both of those incidents has really left an imprint on me of it doesn't have to affect your relationships with people. It's okay to be competitive. It's okay to run as hard as you want to run. Well, I'm picturing both of those races only I have to hear Alicia Keys's This Girl is on Fire in the background. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love that song. So let's do it. Yeah. Yes, (laughs) yes. I I see it. I see it. So you came to college at CU Boulder and had a lot of success there. Um, Your team won the first ever national cross-country title in CU history. Congratulations. Then you joined a new running team at Nike. Can you describe what the Oregon Project was intended to be? Yeah, the Nike Oregon Project was started in 2000, and it was really to bring American distance running back to the forefront. As a country, we just weren't performing very well in the distances, and specifically in the marathon. And Alberto Salazar and I believe Tom Clark were at the Boston Marathon and said, "This is we're celebrating because someone got in the top 10 at the Boston Marathon, but we're nowhere near the podium. So they started this program, and it was all for men but it was really to give them all of the tools they could possibly need to be successful and hopefully bring American distance running back to the forefront. My husband and I were invited to come visit and we were completely blown away. We had never seen anything like it. And it really was groundbreaking at the time. It was professionalizing team distance running, which there wasn't anything. There were little groups and pockets of people around the country that were training, but this was like, you had the backing of Nike. You had a budget to travel to train at high altitude. You had massage therapists and PTs and access to incredible technology and equipment. And so it really was about bringing distance running back. And I felt really lucky at the time that I was the first woman to join. Well, Adam, of course, is your husband, who is also an elite runner and also ran for the Oregon Project. So you mentioned Alberto Salazar. Uh, He's the coach for the Oregon Project. And 
What did you know about him going into it? And what was your expectation of working with him? You know, I didn't really understand how good he was. You know, as far as I knew, he was a marathoner. Of course, when I get into his world, I learned just how influential he is. And he won the New York City Marathon three times. He mm. won the Boston Marathon. He's an absolute legend in the sport. He set the world record at one point. And it was the way people acted around him. That's when I really realized, like, oh, he's a big deal. I mean, I remember getting in a cab in Europe and the cab driver started freaking out. And he was like, Alberto Salazar in my cab, like, and got his <laughs> autograph. And he was just larger than life. And of course, training at Nike, they have buildings named after sporting icons. And he had his own building at the Nike campus. Uh, you were the only female runner there for several years. And you had come to the Oregon Project sort of in conjunction with your husband, because he, of course, as we mentioned, was also an elite runner. But within a few years, you became a star of the team. So this coach was making your dreams come true on the track. But he was also freaking you out in a lot of ways. Can you describe the conflicting feelings you were having about your coach? Yeah, I mean, having Alberto believe in me and take more of an interest in me was like a dream come true. I mean, we went there. He wanted Adam. You know, he didn't necessarily want me. I just kind of was along for the ride. But, you know, once I started doing better, he started paying more attention. But there were just things about him that were unusual. Hmm. You know, the way he was very involved in everyone's lives, the way he gave athletes massages, things like that. But at the same time, like the more he was paying attention to me, the better I was running and the more committed I was to what we were doing. So it was sort of over a period of time where I just started to, when I would see something that was different or suspicious or whatever, I would just excuse it away. Now, in the book, you talk about how he also constantly commented on your weight in a way that felt beyond a healthy coaching relationship and had weigh-ins to, in your opinion, embarrass you in front of your teammates. Yeah, he was very obsessed with weight. And, you know, he would sometimes weigh us in front of each other, but otherwise would weigh us in the lab. And, you know, especially for one of my teammates, I feel like he really used it as a humiliation tactic for her, uh, which I regret not standing up for her. And there was no science behind it. It wasn't like we were working with a nutritionist or getting our body composition done and, you know, working with some sort of professional. It was just based on his, what he saw. And he sort of just picked these arbitrary numbers of what he thought you should weigh. And unfortunately, that practice continued long after I left the team. You also write about two incidents of sexual abuse by your coach. In addition to all the violating and demeaning comments, why did you decide to put yourself through the struggle of reliving those moments in order to get them out there in the public in this book? I felt like it was important to share all of that. I had a lot of embarrassment and shame with all of that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I was in my 30s. I was married. I wasn't a teenager. I wasn't fresh out of college. I was a grown adult. And there was a lot of shame for me that this had happened. I felt like at some level it was my fault or that I allowed it to happen. Mm. As I got, as I started to work through it, it became really important to me to share. Like if I was going to share my story, I needed to share it all because I felt like there were going to be a lot of other women who have experienced similar circumstances, not necessarily in running, but just in life. And it, I, it was important to me to let them know that it's not your fault and there's no textbook way of how you react or how you should react, but also that you can get through it. You know, it was something I carried for a long time and 
I was afraid that if I ever talked about it, I would be defined as damaged in some way. Mm. And so it's just really important for me to, to just tell the truth of what happened, speak about it openly so that other people could see themselves in it and realize that they're not alone. Now, you mentioned this shame. What has made it possible for you to stop feeling that shame and just let yourself off the hook? I mean, honestly, it was a lot of therapy. I had a really, really good therapist here in Boulder that I worked with who helped me to realize that, you know, I didn't do anything wrong and Mm -hmm. that I didn't react in a bad way. I reacted the way I had to react to survive the moment. And um, like, like most athletes and a lot of women, I think, we learn how to compartmentalize because like as an athlete, you... You can't think about how much you're hurting because that would distract from what you're trying to accomplish. Or you can't get too excited about the finish because you can't get let those emotions get in the way. And so I think I really learned to just compartmentalize it and push it aside. And working with a therapist, I really learned uh, it was hard, but to kind of open up those boxes and um, work through what happened and, and to sort of forgive myself for how I reacted during that time and to understand that I was just doing the best that I could do in those moments. Now, what happened to your coach? He faced some consequences, right? Yeah, well, he was banned for four years for anti-doping violations, which actually is up this year in October. But he was banned for life by safe sport. So he is banned for life at the elite level of sport to be involved really in any way. However, safe sport's jurisdiction is only at elite Olympic level sport. So he could continue once his uh, doping ban is up at the end of this year. He could conceivably coach high school or college. And just to clarify, the, you mentioned the U.S. Center for Safe Sport, which is a Denver-based organization that was created in the wake of Larry Nassar, an abusive former gymnastics coach, to address abuse against college athletes. Yes, but its jurisdiction, it doesn't actually hold people accountable at the college level. So that's the one hiccup with Safe Sport is that the NCAA doesn't fall under Safe Sport jurisdiction. They would have to choose to opt into that. And at this point, they haven't. So are you afraid that Alberto will get to coach again? I am. My wish would be that he goes on and lives a happy life, but is not involved in athletics in any way, shape or form. And I am concerned that there will be people who say it's worth the risk to have him coach. Um, Wow. But we'll just have to see what happens. Now, let's talk about your career in racing. One of your biggest accomplishments is a silver medal at the World Championships in 2007. You ran at 10,000 meters, which is 25 laps around the track. You describe how you found another gear in that race and really pushed yourself to that finish. For those of us who feel accomplished running three miles around the neighborhood on a Saturday, (laughs) what does it feel like to find another gear and have that kick in during a race? Obviously, you're running hard. It's not like you're running easy. But sometimes you know that you're not at that edge. And and distance running is all about timing it right. Like you want to cross the finish line with zero left, but you can't put it in too soon or you won't, you'll struggle to finish. So for me, it was like waiting till that last moment and then being kind of brave enough to say, yeah, I'm going to go harder right now and it's going to hurt. And usually once I push through that pain of the first few steps of sort of switching my cadence, you know, Mm -hmm. the legs would be there and it would carry me in. But it was hard to do that because, like I said, you're you. It's not like you're just jogging and or walking. You know, you're running hard. And in Osaka was one of the first times that I really was able to do that in a in a moment where there was pressure. I had done it in college. I had done it in high school 
here and there. I would call it flipping the switch and, um, you know, change over from a hard run to a sprint. But, it, you know, it was tough mentally to do it there. Not only was I hot, of course, and tired because I'm running the world championships, but also I had never competed against women at that level before. And I was telling my, I had to convince myself, like, I, I deserve to be here. And yes, I could go get a medal right now if I just go for it. So that was a, a huge moment for me as an athlete. And it really changed the trajectory of my career. Now, the world championships were in Osaka. After that, you went to the Beijing Olympics and then decided to switch over to the marathon. That's when you really started to make serious money. Can you lift the veil on how the money stuff works for elite marathoners? Yeah, the marathons are, are they're a good way to make money if you're good at marathons. So you get a contract just to start. And so, for instance, my first marathon, I got $175,000 just to start from the mm. New York City Marathon. And then, of course, there's prize money and then there's also bonuses. So if you run under a certain time or if you place high enough. My first year in New York was also unique where they gave American only prize money based on how Americans did. So you run a solid marathon and you're walking away. I mean, you could walk away with potentially like a half a million dollars. So wow. it, it was a game changer for me because... It was like, and and it helped me understand, you know, you really want to just do two marathons a year and you really want to do them seriously because you want to do them well. Some marathon contracts do have reductions based on how you do. For instance, in 2014, I went back to New York and, and really struggled, had a bad day, and my appearance fee was reduced because I didn't perform well enough. Wow. Um, but if you hit it right and you have a good solid race, you know, it sets you up. And, you know, I had come from where I had a small contract, where I had to fight to get into races. I mean, most races I couldn't get into unless my husband was running. And then, like, he would get in, and then the concession would be that I could get in. And so entering the world of marathoning was eye-opening, and uh, it was amazing and pretty financially good. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like it. You had an incredible debut in that first New York City marathon. You finished third, which you write was the first podium finish for an American woman in 14 years. There was a moment in the race where you felt the presence of your father who died decades before that. Can you tell us that story? Yeah. So I was actually born in New York City. My father was a a Croatian immigrant and his family had an insulation business in New York. And a week before my fourth birthday, he was killed on his way to work. And mm-hmm. and that's how I ended up in Minnesota is that my mom sort of packed us up and we, we moved in with her parents for a little bit. But when I went to race the New York City Marathon, the media was really into this story. And mm-hmm. I didn't really know how to act. Like I had obviously like struggled with the loss of my father and dealt with that off and on throughout my life, but never in, in any context of my running. During the race... I had been told, like, it won't get hard till mile 20. And we were about approaching halfway. And, and I mean, it was hard. It was pretty hard. Wow. And I started to drop back. And I dropped back into fifth or sixth place. And I started to think, like, I can't do this. Like, I'm actually not cut out for this. And this voice just came to me. And it was just telling me, you're okay. You can do this. And I pictured my father. And I had never thought about him ever when I was racing before. Wow. And, you know, it kind of centered me. And... um I got back into the top three and and kept going. And I didn't even realize it until I was talking about it with the media later that I found out that I heard his voice within blocks of where he um, had died. And, you know, I don't know what I believe. I don't know if, if there's ghosts or whatever, but I do believe that he was in that moment. He was there for me. And so 
yeah, I'm like getting choked up. But it was just sort of a, a really special moment that I've never had replicated, but it definitely happened and it was pretty special. Well, it's hard to uh, not get goosebumps hearing that story. It's just, and especially mentioning that it, it was near where he had passed away. And wow, just, just an amazing story. Now, Nike really put you on a pedestal during this time. They had you on billboards and in magazines, and they kept that up after you decided to become pregnant. They touted you as powerful, a multifaceted woman. But then years later, you got in a contract dispute with them because they wanted to retroactively suspend your contract since you didn't run competitively during part of your pregnancy and maternity leave. Now, that part of your book totally blew my mind. Nike was making money off your pregnant image, but didn't pay you a salary during your recovery? Yeah. So at that point, pregnancy was not in athlete contracts. And in fact, I remember when I signed my first contract with Nike, my then fiance asked, you know, what happens if she gets pregnant? At the time, I was horrified. I was like, why are you bringing that up? I just want my little piece of the pie, you know, like, don't ruin this for me. Don't put any ideas Um, in her head. (laughs) Yeah, it's like, it's not going to happen anytime soon. Um, But of course, now, like, women's careers are are going longer and longer. And I knew I wanted to have a child. I didn't want to wait till my career was over. And so it was an open discussion. It wasn't like I just went and got pregnant. Like, I had to go through a fertility treatment. It was an open conversation with my coach and with my husband, obviously. And so when I was finally ready to try and my coach agreed it was a good time, I said, what's going to happen to my contract? I want to have this baby no matter what, but I just want to know what's going to happen because there is no set standard. And he went to the head of sports marketing who said, don't even go there. As long as she stays relevant, we will pay her. So during my pregnancy, I was all over the place. I was on the cover of magazines. I was doing you know, dozens of photo shoots, dozens of appearances on behalf of the brand. Nike actually orchestrated my pregnancy announcement to the world on the front page of the sports section of the New York Times. Wow. And I thought, yeah, yes. (laughs) And I thought everything's well and good. I'm upholding my end of the bargain. I'm showing what a healthy, fit pregnancy looks like. They're They're sharing my story and being able to say that they support women. And so in July, a few months before my son was born, Uh, I was surprised that my payment didn't come through. I got paid quarterly at the time. Long story short, it wasn't a mistake. I found out that I had been suspended. And I mean, I still have a baby in my body at this point. I thought it was really unfair. It caused a lot of stress. I was told at the time by someone in Nike marketing that I was the most requested female athlete across all sports for interviews during my pregnancy. Wow. And I felt like it was very unfair that on the one hand, they would promote me and my image and write, you know, have all these articles written about how women can do everything and at the same time not be paid. <laughs> well, and I guess they can do everything but get paid, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so it really was hard for me. It really made me feel like Nike was not the company that I believe they were. And honestly, it's what I sort of started to think, like, when my contract's up, I, I am going to leave. I need to be with a company that believes in women and treats women the same way behind closed doors as they do out in public. Now, after you, another elite runner, Allison Felix, had a similar experience with Nike, not wanting to pay her during her maternity leave. And she spoke about it publicly after you did. That all led to Nike paying sponsored athletes who get pregnant and take maternity leave. Do you think the changes they've made are sufficient? 
I do. But what I would like is some acknowledgement that it was wrong in the past. I mean, if Allison Felix, the most decorated track and field athlete of all time, male or female, can't get her same salary while she's pregnant, like, what are we doing? You know, and I spoke about it, but it really we needed the superstar and the power of Allison Felix's voice to really get the issue changed. Mm -hmm. And so on the one hand, I am glad that they've amended their contracts. I think that's great. It's good for the sport. It's great for female athletes. It's great for the longevity of female athletes. But what I wish is that we could get some acknowledgement that what was done in the past was wrong and that it harmed women, it harmed careers, and it forced women to come back before their bodies were healed. That's what happened in my own personal circumstance. Well, of course, this was a big public fight, but privately, do you feel some sense of satisfaction that maybe you were, you and Allison and others have been a part of this change to impact other women athletes? Oh, absolutely. I think that's the only reason why we told those stories. You know, Allison was nervous to tell the story of her situation because she didn't, you know, it's it's hard and there's going to be people, be people that doubt you and that question you. But that was the whole point was we we have this opportunity to make it different for the people that come after us. Now, we've mentioned your former coach's suspension for doping. Performance enhancing drugs and cycling are much more well documented and well known. Do you think it was or even still is a problem to the same extent in running? I do. I think that we have a really big problem. I think there's enough research out there now that we know that athletes are cheating the system you can't be tested between, you know, 10 at night and 6 in the morning. There's a lot of microdosing substances that can go on during those hours. And I still think we have a ways to go. And and I know that when I say this, a lot of people in the anti-doping community cringe, but we have to just be really diligent. I would love to see if we could get more money even into investigation. Um, I think investigation, like that would be better if we can see like who's buying what, um, But there's, you know, there's also athlete privacy. And so it's always going to be a battle. But I think there's more we could be doing. And to be clear, you were never implicated in doping. And in fact, you helped reveal the violations from your coach. Yeah, absolutely. And and there's been a lot of talk about me over the years, but I signed over every little bit of blood work, lab work I ever had. I let the United States Anti-Doping Agency go through it with a fine tooth comb. And I have no fear saying that um, I never did anything and I was 100% clean all the time. Now, you came back to Boulder to train and barely missed making your third Olympic team, but you've largely left competition, I believe. Though you do run with your son and he's in middle school getting started in competitive running himself. Did you hesitate at all to encourage him to take up running, given all that you've been through? Yeah. So it's, it is, it's tough, right? Because he loves it. And I mean, one night he was telling me, you know, I was running today, mom, and my lungs felt like they were going to burst and I felt so alive. And that's the stuff where I'm like, yes, yes, you're my son. I totally get it. (laughs) I want him to love the sport like that. I want him to love the way it makes him feel. Of course, if he continues with it, I, I feel like I will have to protect him some. I feel like if he becomes, you know, if he decides to run in high school into college or beyond that, I definitely want to be, I want to protect him and I want to make sure he surrounds himself with good people. So I've seen the absolute worst of the sport. And of course it worries me a little bit, but also I've seen the best of what the sport can do. And Mm -hmm. so I want him to have his own wonderful path. 
And I'll just always be eavesdropping and paying attention uh, <laughs> around him. That mama bear cub, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Well, mama bear protects the cubs. <laughs> what does the public not understand about women's sports that you wanted to start a conversation about with this book? Oh, so many things. I think that, you know, sports were built for men and then we came into them. And there's nothing wrong with that. But we aren't the same. You know, in high school, I wish that I had had more education on what going through puberty what meant and that it didn't mean my body was failing. It meant my body was getting stronger. I really wish that I had had more talks about food and nutrition when I was younger, where men typically their prime is in their late 20s, early 30s. But for women, it's mid 30s and beyond. And so we're not the same and we need more help. A lot of us want careers while being mothers, while having families. While it is challenging to be a father who's an athlete, it's a lot more challenging for the mother. And there needs to be more research into returning to sport and what women need, the support that they need when they come back from childbirth. I just think the the female experience is different, and that's okay. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Kara Gulcher of Boulder talking with me about her career as an elite runner. Her new memoir, The Longest Race, Inside the Secret World of Abuse, Doping, and Deception on Nike's Elite Running Team, pulls the curtain back on the world of professional running. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It peaks at just 11,000 feet, but as the largest flat-top mountain in the world, it certainly lives up to its name, Grand Mesa. Broad and wide, Grand Mesa is capped by a layer of uneroded basalt that dates back to volcanic eruptions 10 million years ago. Rising tall over the dry, high desert, it's graced with hundreds of lakes and home to multitudes of trout, bear, cougars, elk, deer, and according to Ute legend, thunderbirds, whose mighty wings could whip up ferocious storms. After a massive and deadly mudslide on Grand Mesa in 2014, one witness described a sound like a big clap of thunder. And on the western face of Grand Mesa, there's a rock formation that does look like a thunderbird, a reminder that others have called Grand Mesa by another name, Thunder Mountain. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio with the support of National Jewish Health. Breathing science is life. Despite recent strides in public health in our state, a significant disparity persists here in Colorado. Babies of color, particularly black babies and the people who give birth to them, continue to die at higher rates than whites and Asian Pacific Islanders. My daughter's story is loud, colorful, and artful. It's a girl! She was awake, aware, and active. And yet she still died. After she gave birth, Shamani was complaining that she had really sharp chest pains. The ambulance came. I'm telling them the symptoms. Is she on drugs? Next set of people come in. Is she on drugs? They kept asking her mother, is she on any drugs? I'm like, do y'all talk? We waited a solid 12 hours. She's gone. 
That's from the award-winning documentary Aftershock, which focuses on black infant maternal mortality. There will be a screening of it here in Colorado on Saturday. I talked about this issue earlier this year with Dr. Sheila Davis, the former director of the Colorado Office of Health Equity. Our discussion also included Velveta Golightly Howell, CEO of Sister to Sister, International Network of Professional African-American Women, Inc., which is hosting the screening. Dr. Davis, according to the Colorado News Collaborative, a nonprofit statewide media resource hub, the state's progress in recent years on racial and ethnic inequities shows that the gap between non-Hispanic Black and non-Hispanic White infant mortality rates has narrowed more quickly in Colorado than nationally, including in health. But still, a disproportionate number of Black babies and Black birthing people are dying. Tell us more about that. So let me set the table for you around this issue. I'm going to speak nationally. We're going to look nationally, and then we're going to focus on Colorado. Black birthing people in the United States are three to four times more likely to die from pregnancy-related causes as white birthing people. Black infants are more than twice as likely to die as white babies. So that's the national picture. And then looking at the state of Colorado, the Colorado Department of Public Health and the Environment is about to release a report on 20-year trends in health inequities, which will include data on maternal mortality and infant mortality. And 20 years ago, African-American infant mortality was around 16 per 1,000 live births. And so 16, to put that in perspective, is on par with what we see in developing nations. And that Mm. was the situation in Colorado. But fortunately, we are moving in the right direction. And it is currently between 9 and 10, which is incredible that we have made that progress. But we still see these significant gaps in infant mortality. So what are some of the factors that are contributing to these deaths? Let's start with the infants. Some of the leading causes of infant mortality include congenital defects, low birth weight, um, prematurity, sudden infant death syndromes. These are some of the causes But when we think about disparities, we really have to look at the continuum. Um, We have to think about what causes or what contributes to our health. What are the drivers of health? And so we traditionally think about what happens within the healthcare system. So we need to have access to healthcare. Um, We need quality healthcare. We need culturally responsive health care. So these are the things that need to happen within the healthcare system. And in Colorado, we also have what we're calling maternity care deserts. And 40% of Colorado is considered a maternity care desert, which means they don't have obstetrical services, birthing centers, okay, nothing. So you need access, all right. And then you need access to quality care. And I define quality care, particularly in the area of maternal and infant health, as interdisciplinary care. So you might need, you know, an obstetrician. You might need a perinatologist. So a specialist. A specialist who Mm -hmm. specializes in treating high-risk pregnancies. A nutritionist, a behavioral health specialist, a doula, you know. All of these make up a team, and you need that when you're dealing with African-American maternal and infant mortality. You need those teams because the data suggests that those interdisciplinary teams make a difference. 
So, and you also need providers that have lived experiences that are similar to the patients they serve. Hmm. And we see that that also makes a difference. Okay. So these are all factors that contribute to infant health that are within the healthcare system. But let's zoom out because when we look at drivers of health, we also have to think about housing. We have to think about access to clean air and clean water. We have to consider access to healthy food. And there's also been a lot of studies that show down to the zip code. Yes. That is a big predictor of your health outcome. I'm so glad that you brought that up, Chandra, because the data, the public health data, is now pointing to the fact that our zip codes are much greater predictors of our health outcomes than our genetic codes. And Mm. that wasn't the case when I was a medical student. And our zip codes, you know, where we tend to grow up and where we live tends to be influenced by policies and policies have been, you know, racially biased. And so that's why we see these disparities. Well, getting down to the actual medical conditions, what are some of the challenges these people are facing in pregnancy with specific conditions? Birthing people of color tend to have higher rates of hypertension. They tend to suffer from obesity. They tend to suffer from lung disease. And all of these chronic conditions put you at a higher risk for a poor birth outcome. So those are conditions that people of color are experiencing at higher rates than the overall population. The state health department has said racism is one big factor in all of this. And I'm pretty sure there are some people going, how are those two connected to this? Can you kind of explain the thought process on that ideology? Yes. Another great question. So there is a growing body of evidence that links toxic psychological stress caused by institutional racism, structural racism, interpersonal racism, and poorer birth outcomes. And I'm going to describe a a study of African immigrants coming to the United States, giving birth. They are not suffering from these higher rates of maternal uh, mortality or infant mortality. So you're saying birthing people from other countries slash continents are not experiencing the same as, say, African Americans in America. Yes. But two generations later, you see these disparities because it's the lived experience of being African-American in the United States that is toxic. Hmm. Wow. So, Velva, let's bring you into the conversation. There are a lot of issues to explore in terms of public health challenges in, say, the Black community. Why was this issue so important to highlight? We have members who've actually had experiences with childbirth, and we have seen that the quality of medical care makes a big difference. We have also seen that it does not matter your educational level. It does not matter how much money you have in the bank. It does not matter your professional status these odds of you experiencing problems in childbirth are much greater than are other populations of women, particularly Caucasian women. And so that is why 
we have decided to focus on it because to us, our children are the future. And we are the future because we develop our children. If we're not here to do that, either because we have passed away or because we are so sick that we cannot care for our children properly, then our opportunity to live quality lives, which are an innate benefit and privilege that we all have based on the U.S. Constitution, if you were to look at the preamble. So that is why we decided that we had to bring attention to this critical matter. And we had noticed that no other organization in the state had focused on it to raise awareness among Coloradans. Maternal mortality and morbidity is something that is a public crisis. It affects adversely our entire country and beyond the country because we're not just here in the U.S. We are everywhere. Dr. Davis and Velveta, thanks so much to you both for joining us. Thank you for this invitation. Thank you for the opportunity. Velveta Golightly Howe is CEO of the Denver-based Sister to Sister International Network of Professional African American Women, Inc. Dr. Sheila Davis is the former director of the Colorado Office of Health Equity. We spoke in January. On Saturday, Sister to Sister hosts a screening of the documentary Aftershock, which is focused on the issue of Black maternal and infant mortality. Thanks for joining us today, and thanks to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Tom Hess. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbraño. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Sandra Thomas-Whitfield. You're with CPR News and KRCC.